Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day, a beautiful day that you provided here in Indiana. We thank you for the sunshine, and and uh, I love it in the mornings when I hear the birds singing. They're singing praises to thee, and uh, that comes from my heart as well. Uh, we thank you for uh, all the uh, wonderful blessings that you pour out upon us. Uh, we have a home, we have food, we have clothes, we have all the necessities that we really need. And we are very thankful, especially uh, for the gift of your son Jesus, who came to show us how to live a righteous life, to empower us to do that, and to take the weight of sin upon himself and die a death that we all really deserve, so that we may have life, that we may have eternal life. And so, Father, we, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you, you give to us to help us in our, our walk each and every day. And we pray for that Holy Spirit now. Uh, Father, we're getting into some very serious times, and uh, we want to be prepared. And we want to know who, uh, who and what is the church, who is the enemy. We want to be able to discern these things so that we may not be deceived. We just don't have an idea how powerful... Satan's deception will be, and we want to be protected from it. So we pray for your protection. Give me the words to speak this morning, Father, as we tackle this subject of identifying an antichrist. And Father, we lift up those who are dealing with uh, injuries and sicknesses and illnesses. You know who they are. Uh, we pray that you be very near to them and heal them so that they can do thy will and uh, remove uh, these ailments so they can have a positive and powerful testimony of your your love and care. We thank you for hearing this prayer. It's prayed in the precious name of Jesus who is so worthy. Amen. Well, we spent the last couple of years, um, it's hard to believe it's been that long. Um, I mentioned this one time when we started looking at the Bible descriptions of who and what the church is I figured, in my mind, I figured it's maybe six months worth of messages. It wound up being like, now I didn't give it every week, but it, it was like two and a half years or something like that. It was like, wow, pretty exhaustive study, actually. Um, but we took a very uh, a close look at what the Bible defines as God's church, His people, its organization, its purpose. Um, and this helps us, really, it helps us to discern what God's church is not. As well, doesn't it? Um, the Spirit of Prophecy says that uh, the greatest way to um, uncover error is to share the truth. There are some preachers, and this is just a heads up to you, there are some te- uh, preachers and teachers who major in defining who the enemy is when in in my study and belief is could spend better time showing what the truth is the truth will uncover the error more times than not and that's why uh, the prophet says that and so you know as we looked at who and what the church is and all those things involved that the bible says it gives us insight in as to who it is not and how it's not to be but we also as we think about that, we need to, to also um, not give up on looking at what error is per se, see, or who our enemy is. 
there is a time to to be aware of that as well. Um, And so we need to rightly identify our enemy, don't we? And so I want to take some time on this subject, this study that uh, I've entitled Identifying Antichrist. Um, I want to take some time on this. Um, This subject I've noticed as we get down to the end of time here, um, I'm surprised, really I'm surprised by the confusion that I find even within God's own people, His professed people, about Antichrist. It really has kind of shocked me. So I want to kind of go over some of these things. Now this may be, you know, a refresher for some, you know. Russ says, I know who it is. (laughs) Uh, But there may be some things, and, and... one thing, Russ, you know, when you study the Bible, and, and anybody who studies the Bible will uh, attest to this, you can study the same thing over and over and over, and God will teach you something different about it. That's that's a God thing, isn't it? It's remarkable, I think. Uh, and so, uh, we're going to take a look at this, because I believe if we don't correctly know who the Antichrist is, I'm going to share something with you here in just, just a second here. We actually will end up being joined to Antichrist. Do you understand what I said? If we don't know who he is, we will wind up being joined with him. Now, where do I get that from? Let me share this with you. It's from the Crest Collection, page 105. The prophet says, The enemy's last great conflict will be a most determined one. It will be the last battle between the powers of darkness and the powers of light. Every true child of God will fight bravely on the side of Christ. Those who in this great crisis allow themselves to be more on the side of the world than of God will eventually place themselves wholly on the side of the world. You get that? Let me ask you something. When Jesus asks uh, that you follow him, does he just say, walk with me part way? He asks for your whole heart, doesn't he? In fact, he demands your whole heart if you're going to follow him. You have to give up everything, don't you? But you know, the one thing that I've experienced, and maybe you have too, when you give up everything for Christ, you gain so much more. (laughs) It's incredible. But she says this, If you allow yourselves to be more on the side of the world than of God, you're eventually going to be on the side of the world, wholly on the side of the world. Um... Those who become confused in their understanding of the word, who fail to see the meaning of Antichrist, here's the point, who fail to see the meaning of Antichrist will surely place themselves on the side of Antichrist. There's no time now for us to assimilate with the world. Daniel is standing in his lot and in his place. There's a study there, let me tell you. The prophecies of Daniel and of John are to be understood. They interpret each other. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, absolutely. They give to the world truths which everyone should understand. These prophecies are to be witness in the world. By their fulfillment in these last days, they will explain themselves. So if you come across something, you know, there are some parts of prophecy that, I don't want to say are hard to be understood, but but we don't quite know it yet we don't quite it could mean this it could mean that but as she's saying when 
when they are fulfilled, they will explain themselves. We will recognize it through the Spirit. God's Spirit is going to show us. Yes, absolutely. That's fulfillment of that. And that's a great promise. But what I'm, my emphasis was on if we, um, if we become confused in our thinking so that we don't understand who the Antichrist is, if we don't understand what the spirit of Antichrist is, we will end up being joined with Antichrist. So it's important to understand, isn't it? It's important to know who and what the church is. It's important to know, you know, those definitions, but it's, I don't want to say it's just as important, but it is very important to understand who the Antichrist is. Because if we don't, if you don't know your enemy, I mean, Russ is a, a vet. What would you, what would happen if you didn't know who your enemy was? You'd be shooting at yourself. <laughs> you don't, right? You'd be shooting at yourself. Yeah, that's kind of extreme, but that, that's the point, though. You don't know who your enemy is. We're going to be joined with him if, we, if we're not careful here. And we'll not even know what we've done because we'll think we're having a great reformation and revival. And we're going to have a wonderful Christian experience in all this. But we're actually going to be joined to Antichrist. And that's kind of scary. But that's how powerful deception is. When you get deep into the prophecies in Revelation, you begin to see that at the end of the world, the people who are lost are going to be very confident that they have eternal life. The leaders of Israel believed they were doing right when they were nailing Jesus to the cross. They thought they were doing God's will. They thought it was a wonderful thing. They thought that God would bless them. That wasn't the case, was it? But these people, they're going to think that they are having the most wonderful spiritual experience that they've ever had. And let me tell you, the devil is determined that the Seventh-day Adventist people are going to have that same wonderful experience that these other churches are having. He pretty much has all the other churches, friends. I mean, are you not seeing this today? The devil's trying to get the church, you see, to unite with the fallen churches of Babylon. He's trying to what he's trying to do, he's trying to obliterate the line of demarcation between the remnant church and the churches of Babylon. That's his goal. And he wants to get us aligned with them. So we stop preaching, especially the second angel's message, that Babylon has fallen. And we'll get into uh, defining Babylon a little bit later on. Not today, but a little bit later on. But I'll tell you something, the spirit of hostility which is developing in the Seventh-day Adventist Church against the three angels' messages is incredible, I think. It's just remarkable. Um, the, condition of, the condition of the church shows us that the devil has been pretty effective. And it's been going on for a lot longer than most people realize. Because he works behind the scenes. Right? It's very sad to see. Let me tell you, it's very sad to see. And I think we need to be praying more earnestly for ISAP so that we can see and discern um, who our enemy truly is. The third angel's message is about the Antichrist. Because the beast power that you find there in the first ten verses of Revelation 13 talk about Antichrist. 
That's who it is. So the mark of the beast is actually the mark of who? It's the mark of Antichrist. And the worship of the beast is the worship of who? Antichrist, right? So according to Revelation 13.8, you read that, everybody in the world, except the saved, of course, right? But everybody in the world is going to worship the Antichrist. Everyone whose name is not in the book of life is going to worship the Antichrist. It's going to be universal. I find that that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. It just is, because I I know a lot of people who are good people, but let me tell you something. If you're not joined with Christ, you're going to be joined with Antichrist. (laughs) That's just the way it is. There's only two sides in this conflict, right? Yeah. We need to be realistic, don't we? But they're going to think they're having a wonderful time. They're going to think that it's, it's the most incredible worldwide revival that's ever been. And there's going to be a reformation in our life. We're all in unity. See? They're going to feel so wonderful. It's going to be very religious, too. It'll apparently be the most successful religious revival in human history. And according to Revelation 18, the kings of the earth and the various government leaders all over the world are going to be involved with it too. And the legislatures, and the courts, the church leaders, the thought leaders, the civil leaders, the professionals, the wealthy people, they're all going to be involved with this. Every one of them. And they have to be. To enforce a law that you can't buy or sell will take all of them. They have to be in unity to enforce that. So when you get all these people involved, the great mass of humanity is going to fall right in behind and say, this is the most wonderful thing. And the Spirit of Prophecy says that they're going to come to our people and they'll say, angels are among us and miracles are among us. And this is the millennium of peace. Isn't that right, Russ? This is the millennium of peace. For We've been hoping for this for so long. We're privileged to be alive at this time. Everything in the world is at peace, except for you people. <laughs> Notice this from the book Maranatha, page 209. They declared that they had the truth that miracles were among them, that angels from heaven talked with them and walked with them, that great power and signs and wonders were performed among them. And this was the temporal millennium which they had been uh, expecting for so long. The whole world was converted and in harmony with the Sunday law and this little feeble people stood out in defiance of the laws of the land and the laws of God and claim to be the only ones right on the earth. Yeah. Alarmist troublemakers. But of course, you know, they're not going to know that Armageddon's right around the corner. (laughs) Right now, Christians all over the world are praying that the Lord will bring peace to the world. That's what the whole push for unity is about. You think these terrorists are just uh, doing these things of their own? They're being controlled, are they not? Powers of darkness? 
Don't you think there's an end to this? The end justifies the means, right? Isn't that Satan's law? The devil's going to make it look like God has answered their prayers. Then they'll say, angels are among us, like she says. And the whole world's at peace. Few people are so stubborn, would only go along with this movement, be in harmony with the Sunday law, then the whole world's going to be at rest. We're going to have unity. We're going to have a one world government. Everything's going to be peaches and cream. Let's go back to the book Maranatha. Again, that was page 209. She says, I saw our people in great distress, weeping and praying, pleading the sure promises of God, while the wicked were all around us, mocking us and threatening to destroy us. Then she says, notice this, this is interesting. She said, they ridiculed our feebleness, they mocked at the smallness of our numbers, and taunted us with words calculated to cut deep. When I read that, you know what it reminded me of? Jesus is hanging from a cross. And didn't they come and mock Him? If thou be the Son of God, bring yourself down! She goes on, she says, They charged us with taking an independent position from all the rest of the world. Well, that's true. (laughs) That's true. They had cut off our resources so that we could not buy nor sell and referred to our object poverty and stricken condition. The Jews believed that if you were in poverty, God was cursing you. You see the parallels here? (laughs) Because there's only two spirits in the world. And they both have the same characteristics they always have. Spirit of Christ, Spirit of Antichrist. Something else. The world's always been impressed by numbers. Isn't that something? And when they see the smallness of our numbers, they're going to laugh. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a taste of that. And as we just read, I mean, Sister White says they're going to mock our poverty. Of course, you're going to be poor if you can't buy or sell. Right? So we're all going to be poor in that day. <laughs> Better settle that in your mind. <laughs> you know? That boat Russ has to go fishing, you ain't going to be able to get gas for that boat. Now you could probably haul it there and get a paddle and go out there and push it. Yeah, we can push it. We push it in it. You know, oars and paddle. But what I'm going to tell you is, I mean, if you had a million dollars, that's not going to matter anymore. For you, somebody will come and take it. They'll use it. That ain't going to matter for you. So what are you going to do then? <laughs> Let me tell you, this is... You, the people called John the Baptist, they said the same thing. He's such a Debbie Downer. You know? Well, yeah. What was John's purpose? It was to warn the people, wasn't it? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. We're living in the great day of atonement, aren't we? Spiritually speaking. The day of the Lord is at hand, friends. I don't want to be lost. I don't want you to be lost. 
And I'll tell you, if you don't know for sure what you believe, you're not going to make it. The promise is, though, that you can be sure what you believe. And if you don't know absolutely for sure the truthfulness of the three angels' messages, you're not going to be able to stand against the rest of the world. The thing is, you're not standing alone. You know, what looks like the majority to, to us here on this earth is actually the minority in creation. <laughs> so, you know, you're not standing alone. So you need to know who, who the Antichrist is. And the mark of the beast is the mark of Antichrist because the beast is Antichrist. And I, as I keep studying this subject, the number of descriptive things I find as identifying marks of the Antichrist, it gets larger and larger. I think my last count, I was up to like 60 different identifiers. And don't worry, Barb, I'm not going to go through all 60. <laughs> uh, so we need to know how to identify absolutely for sure who the Antichrist is because almost the whole Christian world today, even many Seventh-day Adventists are confused about who the Antichrist is. And mainly it's because they, they haven't, they're no longer a people of the book. They get into watching you know, the, the Left Behind movies and they read you know, the millennial books that are sold in their bookstores. Unbelievable to me. So there's confusion. And let me tell you, if you don't understand this, can you really give the, the three angels messages with power? No. You can't. So this is vital. This is an important subject for, for even Seventh-day Adventists. God has put us here for this time and place to explain to the world, right, the three angels' messages. That's our mission as God's people. It's the last message to be given to the world. So, let's look at the first detailed description about the Antichrist power. Has anybody got a guess? Russ, you got a guess? Where would, if you were to describe Antichrist, where is one scripture that you would go to? Revelation 14. Yeah. I'm going to start in the Old Testament. <laughs> Daniel 7. And in particular... <laughs> in particular, verse 25. Because it's a real powerful scripture here when you're talking about Antichrist. Daniel 7.25. And speaking about this power, says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given, be given into his hand until a time and times in the dividing of time. How do we know that this scripture here is talking about the Antichrist? What's this power doing? What's the very first thing that Daniel says this power is doing? Exactly. He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints. That means persecute the saints. That's what that word wear out means. Right? Is it the Antichrist power that speaks uh, great words against God, against the Most High? Yeah, absolutely. Does Jesus speak great words against the Most High? No. Christ doesn't, so Antichrist does, right? So by definition, that would be an Antichrist power. You don't really need any other text to show it. Really. 
Now, there are, like I said, last count that I've done, at least 60. <laughs> so let's find out who this Antichrist power is. I like to begin in Daniel 7. That's where I really like to begin because that scripture right there is really powerful. Because um, there are certain... Certain major identifying marks there that are not found really anywhere else in the Bible. That's why I like to start there. And so Daniel 7, it gives us absolutely really indisputable evidence um, as to the time and the place where the Antichrist power would arise. And that's very important because there are so many theories out there of who the Antichrist is. Have you ever heard some people think Antichrist is uh, a man? Right? There's going to be this end-time Antichrist guy show up. World leader. Some said George Bush was Antichrist. Some said Barack Obama is Antichrist. I mean, it's almost like you get another president. Oh, yeah, he's the Antichrist, you know. Some people say Barack Obama is the Messiah, too. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, you know, it's important to understand here. And this scripture here gives, we go through Daniel 7 especially, it gives us the, the time, the place, and that's very important because that identifies exactly who it is and what the power is. Daniel 7 records a vision about four beasts. And they represent four empires or kingdoms. And these kingdoms were going to rule the world. And we know from Daniel 2 that there were only four kingdoms that would be Worldwide in authority, right? Remember the statue, the image? So from Daniel's time to the end of the world, there's only going to be four. So no matter what they're doing over there in Europe, you know, they're not going to cleave together, these powers. There was only four, right? So Daniel 7.23, if you back up a couple verses, it says, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth. Get that? What's he going to do? He's going to devour the whole earth, it's all worldwide, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. This fourth kingdom was not to be superseded by another kingdom. But it was to be divided, wasn't it? In that statue in Daniel 2, it was the ten toes. is divided into ten kingdoms. And we'll see this in a moment. I'm going to go through it again for you. We know that the fourth beast in Daniel 7 is the same as the fourth kingdom in Daniel 2. Isn't that correct? Which is identified as who? Who was the fourth kingdom? Rome. Rome. It was Rome. The third beast was Greece. The second was Medo-Persia. And the first was who? Babylon. It was Babylon. Okay. So, we get down here. Here we're at the time of the toes, you know, in, in study of the prophecies here. Rome was to be divided up. Notice what it says in verse 7. And let me tell you, I, I, don't, I don't want this to be boring to some. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to present it here to grab your attention and keep your attention. I love history. Let me tell you, I could have shared a lot of history here, but I think I would have bored you right out of the, right out of the house. <laughs> you know, but it's really remarkable if you study the history about just the barbarian nations and how they came about and stuff. It's just remarkable to me. But notice what it says in verse seven. 
After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had how many horns? Ten horns. goes along with the ten toes in chapter 2, doesn't it? Ten horns. It had ten horns. In fact, Daniel here, he, he really couldn't describe this beast, could he? He used nature a lot to describe the beast before this, but this one's so great and terrible, he's having a hard time being able to describe it. Look at verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns, those first ten, three of those were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. Isn't that weird? Eyes like... That's not natural, is it? So this is all symbolic, isn't it? There were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. We read that in verse 25, didn't we? But only he's speaking great things against the Most High in verse 25, right? So it says, and a mouth speaking great things. Now notice the explanation. You go down to verse 24, it gives an explanation. It says... And the ten horns out of this kingdom, who is the kingdom again? Rome. Russ told us that. He said it was Rome. Are ten kings. So those ten horns out of that kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall arise after them. And he shall be, again he says this, diverse from the first. And what's he going to do? It says he's going to subdue three kings. So you're going to have ten. Then this other Power is going to come up. He's going to destroy three of the ten. Now, he may not do it himself, which is almost always the case with this power, but they will be destroyed. Now, this other one that would arise after them is referred to as the little horn power, right? It's referred to again in verses 20 and 21, and now referred to again in verses 24 and 25. I want you to notice several things about this little horn power. This is an Antichrist power. First of all, we need to look at where the Antichrist arose. That's important, isn't it? If you don't know where he arose, it's going to be kind of hard to pinpoint him. Okay? And Scripture gives us a geographical place where the Antichrist was to arise. And I praise God for that. He wants us to know who it is, without question. He's going to eliminate 90% of the world. Exactly. He's not going to come up in this place, or this place, or that place. God says, here's the place that he's going to arise. That's important to know. If God shares it with us, we he wants us to know it, right? Now it says... And we read it, this Antichrist was to rise among the ten divisions of the Roman Empire. That's very specific. It's very important to understand. This is a great identifier of the Antichrist power right here. The Roman Empire was divided into ten divisions, essentially, between 351 A.D. and 476 A.D. And those numbers are important to, to know too, but not right now, this time. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to ask you to name the ten divisions because I can't hardly remember my, like Einstein said, why clutter my mind when I can look it up, you know, essentially. So, but I'll cover 
it quickly for you. Uh, you had the Anglo-Saxons, right? That was, yeah, Great Britain, or you think of the English Empire. The Alemanni, Germany. Franks, that was an easy one, which would be France. The Burgundians, really that's kind of the Switzerland area, you know, southern France, Switzerland. Uh, the Visigoths, they were actually the... Uh, if you go in history, they were there were West and Eastern Goths. Okay, the Visigoths were of Spain; they were the Western Goths, and then you had the Ostrogoths; they were the Eastern Goths, and they were part of Spain um, as well, which is very interesting. But it's all one tribe. Uh, the Vandals, you know, that's where we get the word vandalism from. I could tell you some stories about the Vandals. Man, they were a wicked people, let me tell you. that Their name suits them. <laughs> they were in the northern Africa area. They were destroyed in 534 A.D. They disappeared. Uh, the Heruli, they were driven out. That's Odiacer. If you go back in history, you'll see his kingdom. Uh, they were destroyed in five or 493. You had the Suevi, that's Portugal. And then you had the Lombards. That's the northern Italy area. So you had these ten, they're referred to in history a lot as barbarian tribes. And for most uh, circumstances, in most cases, they were barbarians. But they had their own religions. Okay? And this is what's really important to understand. Why three of them were destroyed was due to their religious beliefs. The prophet there, Daniel, he says clearly in verse 8 that this little horn power, the Antichrist power, is to arise among these ten tribes. Where were these ten tribes at? Europe. Right? So we know it's not going to be anywhere else in the world. It's going to be in Europe. So you have to look at that area of Europe where those ten kingdoms were divided uh, from the Roman Empire. That's the geographical place. It can't be anywhere else, can it? It's not ten divisions of the earth like some are pushing today. Have you heard that one? The earth is, is divided into ten parts. Those are the ten kingdoms. You've got to be really careful here. God is very specific. So a power that arose in Africa, let's say Israel. Where's Antichrist going to come from? There are a number that say in Israel. Oh, he's going to come out of Israel. Nope. Bible says he's coming out of Europe. South America. What about South America? No. North America? What about India? China? No. They don't qualify. The place of, of his origin, in essence, has to be among the divisions of those ten kingdoms. Is that clear? Do we understand that? Good. That's important. That's really important. Now, in Daniel 7.24, it says... And another shall arise after them. That's how Daniel put it. In our translation, that's how it's put. That means after the ten kings. That's important to understand too, isn't it? That gives us a time element. The ten kings divided up the Roman Empire between 351 A.D. and 476 A.D., which means this little horn power has to appear after 476 A.D. It can't be before. 
Because any power that comes up before that is not Antichrist. That's not the Antichrist the Bible is describing. Now we understand that, right? Now remember, it's called a horn, right? Which means that it was a king, because these horns were called kings in verse 24. This little horn, the Antichrist power, was another one, or what we would say, another kingdom. It's another kingdom. In other words, it was not one of the European nations, right? It wasn't France, it wasn't England or Germany. It was in addition to those first ten kingdoms. Is that clear? Okay. So we understand that. Daniel said it was a little horn. So in fact, in size, it was so little that it was smaller than any of the other ten nations of Europe. It would arise as a horn or as a kingdom after the ten horns, the division of the Roman Empire. And in the process of arising, the Bible says that it would uproot three of the first ten kingdoms meaning that three of the kingdoms would be overthrown. They'd be done away with. And we already saw the three that were uprooted. They were the Hurrieli, that was in 493, the Vandals in 534, and the Ostrogoths, 538. The earliest date that could be given, according to this prophecy of Daniel 7, when the little horn power would appear, or have, let's say, independent authority, complete authority, was 538 A.D. Now, don't misunderstand, because the little horn power existed before 538 A.D., didn't it? But the earliest time it had that independent civil authority as a kingdom was at that time. And this fits prophecy perfect, by the way, when we get more into it. In other words, let me me maybe explain it this way. Before that time, it was always subservient, you could say, to another power. And, and that is why the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, and the Hurrieli were driven out and overthrown. The little horn power could not have independent authority as long as they were around. Let me ask you a question. Why? Why couldn't it? What was it about these three? Russ touched on it. All three of these powers were supporters of Arianism which was the most formidable rival of Catholicism. Arians held that Jesus was created by God as the first act of creation. Did you know that? That Jesus was the crowning glory of all creation. Arianism, then, is the view that Jesus was a created being with divine attributes, but was not divine in and of himself. That's what they believe. Now, there's, there's been different variants and tangents that have come out of that, but that's the original belief that they had. So, they didn't believe in the Catholic Trinity. See? They also didn't attribute the Pope as the head of the church. They said that the Pope was a heretic. He was the head of a heretic religion. So now you kind of understand you got enemies here. <laughs> these three tribes, these three nations, kingdoms would not bow the knee 
to the Pope. They would not bow the knee to Catholicism. They considered it uh, a heretic religion. And the Vandals wanted to completely destroy them without mercy. I said they were pretty nasty people, let me tell you. If you were their enemy, <laughs> they, were, they were a terrible enemy to have, let me tell you. But they were vanquished. Prophecy said they'd be vanquished, and they were. Now Daniel 7 tells us that this little horn had eyes like the eyes of a man. Isn't that weird? You picture a horn, you know, and then in this horn there's eyeballs. That would be weird, wouldn't it? And that's a very significant statement, really. This is generally a symbol of intelligence. Uh, and that's a stark contrast with the other horns. The other horns, did, it, did Daniel say that they had eyes? No. This little horn had eyes, like the eyes of a man. So in, it is in contrast with those barbarians. If you look back in history, they were mostly illiterate. <laughs> really. And the, uh, so the power represented by the little horn was noted for its intelligence, its insight, its foresight compared to the other horns. And this little horn power, this Antichrist power, it said that he had a mouth speaking great things. And you can really, what's really remarkable is that you can document, it's documented, the mighty things that this power has said. So it's not like you, you, you say, oh, well, you know, how can you prove that? Well, let's look at their own words. <laughs> it's been documented. I mean, this power claims to hold on earth the place of God Almighty. That's a pretty great thing to say, isn't it? And when I say great, not in great, but in largeness. Daniel 7, verse 20 says about this little horn, he says, whose look was more stout than his fellows. In other words, this horn became more prominent than the other horns. That means that this power was greater, became greater than the British Empire, the French Empire, the German Empire, or any of the other nations of Europe. Now, that puts a little qualification on who this could be, don't you think? This couldn't just be anybody. This is a power that is greater than any of the nations of Western Europe, which in the last 1,500 years uh, of history have been the greatest nations of the world. That's a very qualifying statement then. The Antichrist power, according to Daniel 7, verse 21, would make war with the saints, says, and prevail against them. It says again in verse 24 that this Antichrist power would be different than the first ten divisions of the Roman Empire. In what way would it be different? Well, think about those kingdoms and think about this power. How is it different? The difference is that this little horn would be a religious power and the ten kingdoms were just simply civil powers. Does that make sense? One of the key identifying marks of the Antichrist in Bible prophecy is that it will, in verse 25, think to change times and laws. 
And what did Daniel said? He'll think to change times and laws. Now I want you to notice that it's not talking about something that just happens. It's talking about a deliberate, intentional change of times and laws and not just any times and laws. For the little horn to endeavor to change times would indicate a deliberate attempt to exercise the prerogative of God in shaping, actually, the course of history. Let me share something with you about this. The Aramaic word used here for law is dath. We spell it D-A-T-H. Dath. It's a word that's used for both human and divine law. Okay? So it's evident to me that it's referred to in this verse uh, that divine law is referred to in this verse mainly because human laws are changed all the time by civil uh, you know governments you know that would hardly be something that you'd find in prophecy as being astounding you know that to, you know this country shall arise and it'll make human laws every country's done that you know so this is speaking about divine law, specifically. Daniel 7.25 says, They shall be given into his hand until a time and times in the dividing of time. That's interesting, isn't it? Well, that's the same period described in other you know, prophecies. The 1,203 score days is equivalent to that. The 42 months, right, is equivalent to that. You could say three and a half years. You could, I mean... God says it in different ways to tell us the same thing. Okay? Essentially. And we'll get more into the time elements and how to uh, decipher those time prophecies uh, a little bit later down the road. Right now I want to go to the second passage of Scripture that talks in detail about the Antichrist power. And we're going to go to the New Testament. This time I want to go to 2 Thessalonians. And we won't finish this study today. <laughs> Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And, and we know this is the Antichrist power because it says he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that's worshipped. So this is obviously an Antichrist power or anti-God you know, power, right? First of all, we see that the Antichrist will be revealed before Jesus comes. This is what Paul's telling us. And this is very, a very important point too. Because there are many people today who believe the rapture is going to come and steal the saints out of the world. Then the Antichrist is going to come. Paul says differently, doesn't he? Let's look at uh, verse 1 here. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 1. And uh, we'll begin there. He says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. Okay? At this time, there was, you know, because the disciples knew Christ's promise was, I'll come again. 
And at this particular time, uh, especially in the church there at Thessalonica, they believed that it was, and there were some teachings that were going around that Jesus was coming, it was almost like they were date setting. He's going to be here really fast. And Paul's saying, back up the truck a bit. There's some things that have got to happen before Jesus comes. And this is what he's telling them. And so he says, don't let any man deceive you by that. That day's not going to come except there come a falling away first. This is verse 3. So he's giving them some ideas here. He says, there will be a falling away first. And that man of sin is going to be revealed first. The son of perdition. Well, who's the man of sin and who's the son of perdition? We need to understand that, don't we? Okay, Verse 4. This is what this guy does. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Does that sound like Antichrist to you? Yeah. So Paul's saying, before Jesus comes, the Antichrist is going to come. That, that man of sin, the son of perdition. But what's being taught today? Well, the Christians are going to be raptured out, and then that man of sin, the son of perdition, is going to come. Because the Jews then get a second chance. There are no second chance. We're living our second chance right now. That's why Paul says today is the day of salvation. You choose today. So the Antichrist is is to come before Christ comes. In fact, not only does the Antichrist come before Christ, but also the Antichrist will not appear after Christ comes. (laughs) Just another point. Exactly. Because this scripture plainly tells you that Jesus is going to destroy the Antichrist. Anything that the Antichrist does to the world is going to be finished before Jesus comes. That's something we need to we need to understand here. And so this is a very powerful scripture if you're you're helping somebody who's really looking for the truth and wanting to know who the Antichrist is. Paul says that the appearance of the Antichrist will occur as a result of a great apostasy in Christendom. That's what he said. There's going to be a falling away first. Right? And then he called him the man of sin, the son of perdition, or uh, in the original that means the son of destruction. When it says that he opposes all that is called God or worshipped, so we know that he is Antichrist because he opposes... Uh, uh, all that's called God, right? He's opposed to Christ because Christ is worshipped. He exalts himself above all that is called God. It says that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. In other words, the Antichrist accepts worship. And this is a most revealing and significant statement about the Antichrist. He accepts worship. During the 3rd and 4th centuries, a man named John uh, Chrysostom, he was preaching. And this man, this John Chrysostom, he understood something about the Antichrist. He studied Matthew 24, he studied uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, and he knew about the Antichrist appearing as God in the temple of God. Where is friends, where is the temple of God? Well, 
<laughs> well, by this time, Jerusalem had been destroyed, right? So, it's not Jerusalem anymore, is it? Right? You see, some people are today are confused. They think the Antichrist is going to, to be some atheist who appears in Jerusalem at the end of time. Okay? But the temple had already been destroyed long before the 4th century. Right? And this guy, he, underst- he was understanding this. Um, in Ephesians 2, Paul says the temple of God is the church. Isn't that what he says? The house of God, the temple of God, it's the church. And John, this John Chrysostom, he told the people, the Antichrist is going to appear in the church. And he was saying this back in the um, 4th century. Is that true? Is the Antichrist going to appear in the church? See, people are confused by this. Paul was pretty plain about it, wasn't he? What's a falling away mean? You say, people of the world, oh, they're going to, there's going to be a falling away of the people of the world. No, they're already fallen. They're people of the world. <laughs> You're right. Scripture says, in the temple of God, and the temple of God in this world is the church. So this passage of Scripture shows us that the Antichrist is going to sit as God in the Christian church. But then it says in the last part there of verse 4, it says that he is showing himself that he is God. That's pretty interesting. In other words, he's taking the place of God on earth and accepting worship from people. That's what Paul's saying. Now, if you're a Christian there at Thessalonica and you're reading this letter from Paul, I think you would be stunned. The Antichrist is going to come from the church? Wow. People today are still stunned. (laughs) Let's look at what Paul says in verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. So, what Paul's saying here, he's saying that the spirit of Antichrist was being restrained in his day. It was already here. The spirit of Antichrist was already at work, even though it was being restrained. Notice what he says in verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. So the spirit of Antichrist was already present in Paul's day. Okay? Remember, there's only been two spirits in the world. Don't ever forget that. Spirit of Christ, spirit of Antichrist. But we're getting specifics here from the Lord. So Daniel 7 shows that the Antichrist would not be revealed as a kingdom until after the fall of the Roman Empire, right? We studied that. But Paul says the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of iniquity, and when you see that word iniquity, you could, you could say lawlessness too. This, this spirit of lawlessness was already at work in his day. In other words, the Antichrist power has roots that go all the way back to the time of the apostles. Isn't there a church that claims to be a descendant of the apostles? It's the Antichrist power, isn't it? Claims to be descendant of the apostles. 
His roots go all the way back to that time. But it was restrained then, see? It could not be manifested then, but its roots were there. And then it says there, Paul says, he calls it the mystery of iniquity. And that's an interesting expression. You know, I've run into people who, who blame God for sin. Have you ever run into people that? God created sin. Well, He created Lucifer. Lucifer was the first sinner, so He created... Now, sin, lawlessness, is a mystery. This is something that you just can't explain. You can't black and white say, oh, this is... God tries to explain it to us, in like Isaiah, Ezekiel. He was lifted up because of His beauty. Okay? But that's an interesting expression, isn't it? The mystery of iniquity. If you want to do some research sometime, the New Testament speaks of seven mysteries. Did you know that? Maybe I'll preach on that one of these days. And this is one of the seven. The mystery of iniquity. The mystery of lawlessness. Why is it the mystery of iniquity? Well, I'll tell you why. Because it is a system where people think that they're keeping the law when they are actually breaking it. It's an amazing thing. It's really amazing. Most of Christendom will tell you they're keeping God's law because it was changed to two laws, right? The Ten Commandments have been done away with. We have two new laws. But are they really keeping those laws? No. But they profess to be keeping. So this is this mystery of iniquity. It is this system where people think they're actually keeping the law of God. No, they're really actually breaking it. Paul says the same, exactly the same thing as Daniel. He says it's already at work, but it's being restrained right now. But then he says that after the one who restrain, restrains it is taken out of the way the Antichrist power would be revealed. Now let me ask you, who is the one that at that time was restraining the mystery of iniquity? Now I'm talking about world here. We all know that God allows things, and I'm not talking about God. Who was it at this time that was restraining this Antichrist power? It was Caesar. This is the time of Paul, remember? The Roman Caesar claimed to be the incarnate God of the Son. Isn't that right? The Son God in the flesh. That was his proclamation. The Roman Caesar demanded worship so the Antichrist power could not be revealed because he was demanding worship. He was a civil authority, wasn't he? The Antichrist power is what kind of authority again? What kind of kingdom? It's a religious one, isn't it? Even though he claimed to be God and all this. It was restrained by this pagan power that had control of the world. So the spirit, the mystery of iniquity, the Antichrist power could not be revealed during the time of Paul. But Paul said, after the one who is presently restraining him is taken out of the way, then it's going to be revealed. Well, the Roman Empire was taken out of the way between 351 and 476 A.D. I think probably probably a good time to stop here. Let me see. Yeah, let's, 
let's stop right here. I will read Second uh, Thessalonians two eight nine, because Paul goes on. He says, "And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming." So see, He's got to be revealed before Jesus comes, because He's destroyed by the coming of Jesus. In verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And the next time we, we get together, I'll, I'll go more in detail about that. What Paul is saying here. And then, you know, I'm going to get in to eventually, I'm going to get into Revelation 13. And, and uh, so, you know, I hope you can join me or you know the the audios of this will be available on the websites as well so let's bow our heads and let's have a word of prayer father in heaven again we thank you so very very much for this holy sabbath day and and the opportunity we have to be together here and to study from your word and uh, we're very thankful that you revealed uh, to us truths that are are for us to understand so that we may be prepared and be preparing for this final battle that's coming and is on the horizon. Uh, Lord, I believe it's it's at our doorstep. And so I pray that uh, eyes will be opened, that they may see this truth, be prepared um, through the Holy Spirit uh, to stand uh, for truth and righteousness, uh, uh, though uh, the heavens fall. Uh, please be with each one the remainder of this day uh, and give them that spiritual rest that uh, we also very much need. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.